Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except if you're too scared to turn the page, we already did it for you. This month's selection is Gus Moreno's terrifying book, This Thing Between Us. It's a horror novel. It's told from the point of view of Thiago, who is mourning the loss of his wife, Vera, from an accident at a train station. Even before Vera died, eerie things are happening in their Chicago condo. Their smart speaker may or may not be possessed by an evil spirit, but after her death, everything just keeps getting weirder. That's all I'm going to say for the sake of spoilers. Gus is here with us now. Gus, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I feel like we have to start by knowing... Do you have a smart speaker? I do, yes. You do. Wow. Do you trust it with your life then, huh? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't tr- I don't know if I trust it with my life, but I do have to like <laughs> admit it it did give me the idea of like uh writing a horror novel about a smart speaker. So it, it's not all the way bad. That's so funny. So it was like that was the the kind of grain, the seed that you grew this book from was that concept. Yeah, it was literally me asking uh my Amazon Echo something, and I was little, a little bit under the influence. So when she responded to me, it was like in a, a different response that I was not expecting, and it scared the hell out of me. So I was like, oh, this is something. I have to do this. Oh my God, that's amazing. Do you remember what you asked her? No, I, I don't. I have no, it might have been like the weather or something. Yeah. And, and she just went on a long tangent about all the things she can do now. And I was like, oh, my God, what, what's going on? That's so crazy. So at the top, I mentioned Vera is in an accident. Um, someone runs into her at the train station and he happens to be an undocumented immigrant. And she goes into a coma before she dies. It's it sounds miserable and excruciating for everyone involved. And her story becomes this really fascinating galvanizing issue um, between like both pro-immigrant and anti-immigrant platforms, which I thought was really fascinating, partly because it the way you wrote it, it felt like it brought such a huge sense of irony around the whole thing. At what point did you know that needed to be a part of the plot? You know, it just felt something very obvious to me. Um, Well, one, I knew I needed I needed to get Tiago to Colorado. Mm. So I was like, how, how do I do that? And just, it was just this perfect, you know, connection of like this terrible things happening and um, what would happen if it, if it was like charged with some type of like immigrant side story or just something about immigration, it would get blown up and then used for like ulterior motives and agendas. And we would lose sight of the actual people at the center of it. And I I thought that would be enough to drive a, a widower to like just leave everything behind in a in get a, the hell out yeah in an attempt to just like escape all of it yeah there's something about as you're as you said the idea of like 
completely losing track of the people whose stories they actually are when when a political cause kind of like takes up the charge that I just found really, really powerfully portrayed in this book. Oh, awesome. Like it also ties into just the other themes of just like what is a person and like what is what is, what is uh, the thing we live but leave behind when we die? Mm. Um, Tiago is kind of trying to get trying to get to the center of that, but whenever he tries, it just seems to like escape his fingers. And this is just like another example of like his wife's memory being used in this other fashion that that like is out of his control, and it it kind of just like makes it even harder to get at the bottom of his grief and, and try to understand his feelings towards his wife. Totally. And something that he has like complete, like no control over whatsoever, you know? Right. So yeah, you mentioned grief. This is something that I found really fascinating about this book. I have to admit, I don't read a lot of horror novels, mostly because I don't like being scared. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. But I feel like I really loved this one because there is so much social and kind of cultural commentary. And the idea of grief was so powerfully written about in this story. Is that a common thread in horror novels or stories? Do you know? I feel like it is. Um, when I kind of decided to do this, to to write a horror novel that would just have, you know, be centered around grief, um, I, I was not like want for examples. Like there are tons of works out there that, you know, kind of deal with this intersection of grief and horror. Um, some other books I, w- I would like recommend is Sarah Grand's Come Closer. Um, which is a different, it's a different kind of like grief per se. It, it's more like someone who is like dealing with possession, but also like dealing with a mental breakdown hmm. and and kind of like the intersection of that. There's also The Fisherman by John Lingan, which is two widowers uh, coming together to like, they bond over fishing. It's through that that they learn about this tale called uh, Dare Fisherman in this like local area where like, nobody knows about that the like that the fishing is like great but there's this like secret uh terror living there um there were like a lot of examples in movies too i think hereditary is a big mm. one um i mean pretty much ariaster's films in general they like deal with grief and horror so yeah like it it felt like i was like entering a a world where where horror is just like coming into into the same lane as grief at at like this perfect time. I mean, it does seem like such a perfect collision of ideas, partly just because so much of grief is being haunted to a certain extent, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's It's like, you're being tormented by yourself, by your own brain, like your memories, you're being tormented by like just the, the sheer like audacity life has to like make, make you continue living in the wake of this like great loss, like it feels sort of like you've entered a parallel universe where where you're still you, but this person that you love is gone. Yeah. And you're like, you're forced to like live in this new universe, but with the memory of this like previous universe. Um, and it just feels so like absurd and and like I don't know, I want to say disrespectful in, in a way, like it just feels like life will just like disrespect you in that way. And you just have to like take it. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a line. I wish I had written it down. I listened to the audiobook, but it was something essentially along the lines. It was like after Tiago, after his wife has died, he's in Colorado, something else that's horrible happens that I'm not going to say. 
But there's a you probably remember better than I do. But there's a line essentially that's like he looks up and is like nothing bad was supposed to, like the bad thing already happened. I'm not supposed to have to deal with like more bad things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where he's like, oh, I wanted to it's like I wanted to like take the shooting script of my life yes. and like, point it to the sky yes. and be like, we're, we're already ba- we're past the bad stuff. Like <laughs> right. it's supposed to be the resolution already. Yeah, I just thought that was really fascinating. I think another interesting way of looking at grief in this book, I think, is around the the idea of Tiago and his identity. He's not a fluent Spanish speaker, and he struggles a lot with the idea of being kind of quote unquote Mexican enough. And that seemed to me like sort of a grief of its own. Does that feel right to you? Yeah, I think so. I think it plays with the theme of of kind of being between worlds mm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's one way that Tiago is sort of like stuck in the middle of these two worlds where he's like, he's not Mexican enough for the Mexicans and he's not American enough for the Americans, uh, which echoes this like this scene in uh, the Selena movie with Jennifer Lopez that like just it, it says the same thing. Hello. We're Mexican. No, we are Mexican American, and they don't like Mexican American. And they can be mean, and they can tear us apart over there. Selena Spanish is. What about my Spanish? I've been singing in Spanish for ten years. It's perfect. Singing, yes, but when you speak it, you speak it a little funny. And down there, you got to speak perfectly, or the press will eat you up and spit you out alive. I've seen them do it. Overreacting is usual. Yeah, the music will speak for itself, Dad. Listen, being Mexican American is tough. Anglo's jump all over you if you don't speak English perfectly. Mexicans jump all over you if you don't speak Spanish perfectly. We've got to be twice as perfect as anybody else. I feel like that's an example I've had in my head uh, forever because it's so true. Like you just feel like as a Mexican-American caught between these two lanes um, and it's just your existence. (laughs) Like it's not even like you can jump into one side more than the other. It's like, no, like your existence is is between these two worlds. And it's it's one of just like conflict uh, that you just grow used to, I guess. That's fascinating. Um, I'm curious, like that seems to me like a really interesting filter that you can explore through something like horror. I kind of feel like sci-fi is another space that can do similar things where like, you know, ostensibly it's about like the spaceship doing whatever the thing is, but it's also it's actually about like creating a whole new civilization on this tiny ship with only eight people or whatever. Um, but mm-hmm. it just got me wondering, like, do you, are there certain things that you think horror as a genre can do that maybe other genres like can't quite pull off quite as well? Yeah, I think horror is one of the few genres where you could literally do anything. <laughs> you, you can you can do. I'm not I'm not one to like uh, subscribe to like horror tropes or like that there are like rules in horror. Like, no, like horror to me just feels like it's like the wild west and you can literally do whatever you want because like the end goal is, is trying to get towards something that's like otherworldly in the sense of like, just like pure terror, pure fear Hmm. that you're touching on something that is like below the surface of everyday life. And I think that's, Another thing, too, is uh, something that Stephen Graham Jones has said, where it's like horror is like an emotion and therefore you can like put it in any kind of story. Huh. Uh, I think that's why like Steven Spielberg's movies are so great, because like he he infuses horror in all of his movies and we just don't realize it because uh, they're just like these like great thrills. 
That makes total sense. That's really cool. When did you start reading it or watching it? Oh, man. Like, is it, were you always a horror fan as a kid and everything, too? I never thought of myself as a horror fan. I always used to think, like, horror fans are the people who have, like, they've seen every uh, Friday the 13th and, like, Nightmare on Elm Street movie, like, over and over and they like they go to like horror movies opening night and they laugh throughout the whole thing and, and just wear like black t-shirts with like pennywise on it um that to me was like a horror fan and i was like oh i'm not oh i guess i can't call myself a horror fan because like i'm terrified i'm scared of, of these things even when i'm watching them so you're even in an in-between space about that kind of huh yeah oh that's a, yeah that's a good point i i definitely am i for sure was watching horror from like a very young age uh, just because like movies are the way that my family kind of like bonds. Mm. So if we if we heard that like there was a good movie out, if it was horror, it didn't matter. I had to see it because I had I just had to see a good movie. So I wanted to be like in the conversation. So that got me into horror movies. And then, then it wasn't until I wanted like my mid 20s that I started reading horror mm. and realized like, oh, like it's it's actually something totally different than the horror you see in movies where like the horror in, in film is just so much more visceral. Uh, the horror in literature, just like it like gets inside you before you realize it. And then there's this like stuck feeling with, with a horror novel that you don't get in a movie uh, that I find like so fascinating uh, and that I absolutely love. Cause it's like once once you get those like claws sunk into your reader, you can just look, you can just go anywhere, uh, which this book does. Oh my God. Claws is definitely the right word. At what point, like, did you decide then that you wanted to write horror? I started out writing fiction, like, I think the same way most people do, where I was like trying to copy the like literary figures of our time, where I was like, I was trying to be like the next Raymond Carver or like trying to copy Ernest Hemingway or Zadie Smith, uh -huh. like someone just like, who's writing I just like admire and, and think like, oh, I would like to write like that. But like every time I try to write a literary story, it would end with like a serial killer or like <laughs> just some random thing that finally I was like, okay, what if I just, what if I just started with the intent Let's of writing a horror in. story? Huh. Yeah. Let me just lean into this. Uh, Cause I just felt like my writing was like bouncing all over genre wise. And I just wanted, I just wanted some kind of like, lane that I would I could like always stick in but like it would give me the freedom to like do whatever I wanted in that lane uh, and it just felt like horror was that fit it's surprising to see people uh find the things I find scary also scary just because I'm like I think everything's scary <laughs> so <laughs> so for people to like also feel that way is like comforting huh that's so cool. So this book has, pro it's probably quite unsurprising, like this book gets gory. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I was so impressed with the way you have like a number of extremely disgusting analogies that you used for like, for example, mm -hmm. empty eye sockets. <laughs> and I, you know, like, as you're talking about horror movies, I think especially in that space, it can feel so easy for that kind of thing to become like almost comical, you know? Yeah. Um, but I feel like yours is just like straight up legitimately terrifying. I'm curious how you how you figure out how to describe something that's like truly horrific in a really compelling way that people can picture. You know, I think 
I may have stolen that from like Lucia Berlin, who is a, a short story writer who mostly just writes uh, like literary type fiction. Um, we're just, they're just stories of, you know, women just going through tough circumstances, but she has this amazing ability of like lulling you into these perfect sentences where she's describing something mundane. And then like the next sentence is this like short clip sentence that absolutely destroys you. I love the way she does that. And I think that's me trying to do the same thing where I like, you know, I just, I try to like couch the prose in some type of emotion or feeling, and then just like lay the, the visceral details like right after it. Um, I, I don't know if maybe that's, that's what I'm doing the whole time, but uh, a lot of times that's what I think I'm doing, <laughs> if that makes sense. For sure. Well, yeah. I mean, the word I keep thinking of is incisive. Oh yeah. That's, that's, I think that, that also like, is something I got from uh, from reading this biography about like the punk rock scene in like the 70s and 80s. Really? Yeah, it was reading about uh, the Ramones and how they would go to uh, CBGB, right? Yeah. And like if their show was like playing at like 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock on the dot, they were on stage, plugged in, one, two, three, hit like do their entire album in 20 minutes and then just get off the stage. Uh, there's something I like, mm. I absolutely loved when I read that of just them being like, yeah, like we wanted to be like so pure, it would hit you right away that I want my writing to be the same way. So it's like, I don't think of myself as a great prose writer. So the the whole objective for me is to just get things as concise as possible. Mm. So then I can like move on to like, the like, what the fuck type stuff more with Gus about this thing between us in just a minute. Let's go. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So how do you shake off a day of writing? I'm just picturing you like in this really intense space with like, you know, this kind of sparse prose, like these very intense thoughts, all of these really difficult themes to wrangle, let alone like the little, the gore of it all. Like, do you have like a ritual or anything that you do when you're done with the day of writing to sort of like, you know, get in the mode of being a friendly human again or anything? Not really. No, I, you know, I will write, horrific scenes with uh my dogs laying in bed with me or like it it really it really doesn't like I I don't need that like change especially when I was writing this thing between us um I was just so in the grip of grief as it was like I had just recently lost someone and it was literally the only Mm -hmm. thing I could think to do which was like to to get this to like come up with a story that could provide a frame for me to just like get all of my grief out. Um, so that's, wow. that's literally, that was like literally what I was, what I was doing just writing. This was just like 
letting all of it out onto the page um, with the hopes of just like continuing the next day. Like that was always the objective was just like more, 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 because like I was just I was just feeling so much. Um, I felt like I was inexhaustible. So like the story itself was going to be inexhaustible. It was just going to be this gauntlet of like things happening one after the other, because like that's what I needed. I needed these things to like pull me through. Um, so yeah, like there was never really like a, a switch gears phase in, in the writing of the book. Like I, I was just like in that mode 24 seven. Wow. I'm sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you. I mean, it sounds like it was probably a pretty cathartic process, huh? I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, like I, I, I wrote it and I think the catharsis is now like seeing the reaction that it's getting. Um, and seeing that like, it's, it's also resonating with people on that level too. Like that, that to me has been like the wow, um, that now like this thing is out there and like other people are reading it and they're, they're getting pulled in by the cover. <laughs> like, first of all, not knowing like what the story's about. And then they read it and I get like messages from people that are like, oh my God, like, you know, my, my mother passed away or like, I just lost my brother or just like, and, and then like the, how the book like helped them in some way. Like, that's the real catharsis that I've been experiencing lately. That sounds so gratifying. I mean, what an impact that you get to have then, you know? Yeah, it's it's like a little community within uh, a horror community, <laughs> which, is, which has been great. That's really lovely. One device that you use that I thought was really interesting is the book is written as the narrator is kind of recounting a story to his wife. So the word you is used a lot, which I found, I mean, it really pulls you in, right? Um, was that always part of your narrative approach? I initially tried to write the story just straight first person, but it, it was not working. It, it was not working. And wow. I went to the U because the person who I'd lost was my sister-in-law, Carol. And uh, after mm -hmm. she died, like I would just write, uh, like pull up my, my Google Keeps note on my phone and just write notes to myself of like just describing my feelings, but I would I would write them as if I was talking to her. So like my notes would would be like you, you, you. Uh, so so when I would like return to the book or when I started writing the book and I would like look to my notes as reference, I just felt like, yeah, like the notes had more uh, more of that like feeling than the book did. So I was like, uh, I think Bright Lights Big City is like the only book I know of that uses second person POV like throughout the whole thing that I was yeah. like I guess I'm gonna be like uh pretentious enough <laughs> to like <laughs> to like try to follow up that book um but I was like this is how the book has to be like this is how it how it has to feel yeah. um and it works like I'm glad it did yeah there's a presence to it that I think is really works well one really interesting theme in this book that kind of comes up is this hypothesis around like what the afterlife is. Um, speaking of in between spaces, I think. Yeah. Um, and essentially the hypothesis is that like whatever you believe in could might just be what you get when you die, which I thought was really fascinating. And it made me wonder what you believe. You know, so that so out of the everything in the book, I think that to me was the scariest thing that I had written um, mm. because wow. it's. It that that is like a, a terrifying thing for me. I don't know. I, and I, I guess I don't know why. I guess it's because like I I just I just want to know what it was all about. <laughs> and if and if at the end it's a choose your own adventure, I would be so pissed off. 
like <laughs> I would know I'd be like no tell me I want to know what it was um so like I've thought about it a lot you know just like what what my idea is and like yeah I, I guess I look at at the afterlife um there is this scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where uh Indy is like he has to like go through these like stages to like get to the the grail uh because his dad's been shot and he like needs to, to save his life and you must hurry Come. but he like has to pass this like chasm and he realizes that it's it's another test and and it's a leap of faith test it's a leap of faith <sighs> he starts freaking out because he's like he, i guess he doesn't have faith and this is a guy who has seen the ark of the covenant like he knows it has supernatural power and when it comes to like the question of faith he still is like unsure um but, but what ends up happening is that he hears his dad cry out and he like he he takes a step forward not be, not so much because he like believes there's a god but because like it's the only thing he can do to save his dad and what ends up happening is like his foot lands on this like hidden uh path that he can't see so i guess like the way i've been looking at it is like in in that sense it's like i want to see the people that i i loved in this world like i want to see them again uh so like i go into i go into death believing i will how like the what that what that means what that uh what that like infers i don't know but like that's that is my intention going into death is like metaphorically closing my eyes and and opening them up again um that's that's how i look at it that's gorgeous that reminds me of something my great grandma always said which is that she wouldn't want to go to heaven cuz she wouldn't know anybody there <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> Well, Gus, thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation. I'm really excited for people to pick this book up. Yeah, me too. I'm so glad we got to talk. All right, you know the drill. Read Gus Moreno's This Thing Between Us, then let us know what you think. You can record yourself on your smartphone and then email the file to us at nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Send us the voice memo before Friday, May 20th. And then, of course, tune in for a discussion the last Tuesday of the month. Also, just so you know, we'll F your eye, if you will. We post a lot of bookish stuff over on our Instagram. You can follow us there at nerdatpodcast. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Maggie Civet builds our newsletter, which you can sign up for at wbez.org slash nerdataf. Brendan Banizak is our executive producer. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.